He's Myron Weber. And he's Jeremy Thomas. And this is Mental Supermodels, the podcast that explores the theory and practice, the art and science of mental modeling. And mental supermodels are practical techniques that influence your mindset when approaching complex problems. Now, before we go right into the episode, we've been doing some pretty interesting things lately, and we have a special announcement that I'd like for Myron to share. All right. Well, actually, I'm going to make two special announcements. Yeah. First of all, I uh, had the privilege recently of uh, being asked to, uh, to sit in on an episode of the Mentally Unscripted podcast. Uh, the the co-hosts there, Scott and Paul, uh, invited me, and their podcast, I think, is uh, well. They also talk about mental models. It's the focus is somewhat different than ours, but I think the audience for our podcast would also be interested in there. So go check out Mentally Unscripted. But the second announcement is that the Mental Supermodels podcast is now podcasting 2.0 compliant. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that we now are able to accept streaming lightning payments, micropayments uh, from anyone who is on a podcasting 2.0 compliant listening client. And there's a lot going on with this whole concept of podcasting 2.0 that I don't want to get into. But essentially, uh, you can think about we have a lot of big platforms right now that are centralizing podcasting. And there's nothing wrong with that model. But there's also uh, some merit to saying podcasting should remain decentralized. And so the podcasting 2.0 uh, is all about keeping podcasting decentralized and allowing listeners to directly stream micropayments rather than having to rely on platform revenue or ad revenue or that sort of thing. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can go to podcastindex.org. That's sort of the hub site for all of that. They have the list of what clients uh, support this and so forth. And Clearly, Jeremy, we're, we're about to get really, really rich um, <laughs> with all, the, all of the, uh, the Lightning Network micropayments that are going to be flowing our way. Oh, I don't know if Lightning's fast enough. Yeah, thanks, Myron. That's actually all pretty awesome. And it's a really exciting time right now because, one, of course, we're kicking off season two of our podcast. And two, because I love our topic. Season one was pretty cool. It was all about applying mental models to business situations and making better decisions. And personally, I'm sure Myron, you feel the same way, but personally, I actually learned a lot um, from season one, just by going through the process that we did of talking and discussing, um, you know, how we think about various situations and work through complex problems. And of all the things that we discussed, uh, there are a few takeaways that I had. That I Great. wanted to bring with us into season two, kind of like for me, uh, as I always mentioned before, these are, are like guiding principles. And one, uh, the first one is to always seek to understand the value of what we're talking about. Uh, a lot of times, even when I'm talking, I'm thinking, uh, so what? Like, why does it even matter? So I want to ask questions and probe a little bit to really understand the value of whatever our topic is each episode. And two, start with the end in mind. I want to think about what we're driving towards. You know, can I picture what that end result looks like, which ultimately helps us work backwards and reverse engineer 
and then figure out what the right steps might be in a situation. And three, I want to keep my risk-seeking goggles on. Of course, uh, you know, I want to talk a lot about opportunities and our process for thinking through opportunities, because of course that's the fun part, but I want to still be mindful of uh, risks so that we can understand how to manage our opportunities. Now, in general, this season, we're going to be applying mental models to investing and money. Of course, we're not financial advisors. We're not giving financial advice. We're not giving stock tips. We simply just want to talk about our process for evaluating. You can give me the stock tips off the air. <laughs> well, if you're ready to be poor. Uh, no, but you know, I think with, with all of that being said, I wanted to get that out of the way. But with that being said, our kickoff topic today is that intriguing person at the party that everyone's staring at, but only a few have the confidence to ask out onto the dance floor. Myron, can you please introduce us to that intriguing and irresistible person <laughs> called Bitcoin and how we can confidently Absolutely. What it. a setup, man. I, I, ho I hope that I can do it justice. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I've been uh, thinking can. about we, Bitcoin we uh, a lot. And I think approaching it from the standpoint of mental modeling uh, is the right way to do it. And not enough people are thinking of it that way. So I think we've got a Bitcoin mental supermodel to, to walk through here today. And I want to I wanna lay out the approach and make it uh, really kind of clear how we're going to approach this. Uh, Jeremy, you've seen the movie Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I, I have, yes. You know, I learned recently that there are a lot of young people who are not familiar with that movie. So uh, I can't take for granted that, that folks know it. So I'll just give a brief setup here. So the, uh, in the movie, the, the Jodie Foster character, Clarice Starling, is an FBI agent. And Anthony Hopkins plays the cannibalistic serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. And so when Agent Starling is interviewing Hannibal Lecter, he lays out the principle that we're going to use to understand Bitcoin. Now, I can't do a Hannibal Lecter impression, but I'm not going to let that stop me from trying. He says, first principles, Clarice, read Marcus Aurelius. Of each particular thing, ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? How'd I do? Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So of each particular thing, ask, what is in it in itself? What is its nature? Getting back to first principles. And so that's how we are going to seek to understand Bitcoin, the Hannibal Lecter approach. So I've got a four-layer mental model uh, where each layer sort of builds on the others of how we're going to understand this. So the four levels, I'll just lay them out and then, then walk through them. So level one is the essence of Bitcoin. Level two is the function. Level three is the characteristics. And level four is the role. Now, spoiler, the role is money. So just uh, that's what we're going to be building up to. But uh, let's, let's start, at the, start at the beginning. The essence of Bitcoin that's often really overlooked is that it's a protocol. And uh, to break that down, just put it in historic context. The, the internet protocol was essentially developed in the 1970s. And I'm, I'm 
putting all of that protocol stack, UIP and TCP and UDP, I'm, I'm collapsing that whole stack together and just calling that the internet protocol. And it was the, the way that uh, packets can be routed across distributed networks. But that by itself just sends packets around. And it wasn't useful until other protocols were layered on top of it. So for example, one of the early protocols that was, was layered on it was the various protocols for email with SMTP and POP and, and, and so forth. So email on top of the internet protocol uh, made it useful. And if you think about person-to-person -person written communication before email and after email and how different that was, well, obviously email made a huge impact on how people exchange written communication. Another protocol layered on top of the internet protocol is HTTP, the World Wide Web as we know it, uh, and the ability to exchange information and hyperlink and, and view information over the internet. How different is viewing information before and after? Obviously, really big difference. Another protocol, HTTPS, which enabled secure encrypted communication over the internet enabling e-commerce and a lot of other things as well. How different is shopping before e-commerce versus after e-commerce? Uh, you, you get the point. I, I don't need to belabor it anymore. So, yeah. And if I could sure. just, if I could just simplify to me what a protocol is, it's just a set of rules. So it's like this base set of rules, whether it's routing or presenting or whatever, it's rules that then needs some utility built on top of yeah, it. Yeah. Right. That exactly. It, and so what we have is the underlying rules for routing packets. And then we add additional rules on top of that that say, if these packets contain certain information, then they can provide this functionality. So if the packets that are being sent over the internet uh, are properly structured to be an email, then you have an email. So each of these is a protocol layered on top of the underlying protocol. So I think, yeah, that, that, that's a really helpful point. Uh, to, to clarify that, that what we're talking about here are the rules. So um, Bitcoin, and I am focusing on Bitcoin. We know that there are other cryptocurrencies and not all cryptocurrencies are identical, but Bitcoin obviously is, is that uh, um, uh, it was the original cryptocurrency. It's the, the largest in terms of market cap and uh, adoption and name recognition. So I think in future episodes, we'll talk about how other cryptocurrencies differ from Bitcoin, but we're going to start just by talking about Bitcoin here. So the Bitcoin protocol uh, is simply that. It's a way to exchange packets over the internet to perform a particular function. And so that's level two of our mental model to talk about Bitcoin is, okay, we've got a protocol. We know that there's a protocol for email. There's one for exchanging information. There's one for uh, secure uh, uh, encrypted information, and then there are other protocols for streaming video. All of these different protocols have their functions. What is the function of the Bitcoin protocol? And the answer to that is that it's a ledger. It's very simply a ledger uh, that says which account, and we'll define what an account means. That's not really the mainstream term that's used, but that's where I'm starting, just in case someone's not familiar with, with Bitcoin and we're really building up from the fundamentals, uh, which account owns what quantity of Bitcoin? 
Yeah, and let me just say to that point that this ledger isn't anything that's unique to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, banks maintain ledgers of transactions. So if you're sending a, you know, if you're sending money from a, your Bank of America account to a Wells Fargo account, both of those banks essentially are maintaining that transaction in their ledgers that are recorded in databases. So this concept of a ledger isn't unique to the to the financial world, but it is the function that that Bitcoin's providing. That's, yeah, absolutely right. That is that's totally true. What's unique about it, if we move from the the function to the next layer, it's the characteristics of that ledger and the protocol that defines it that are really unique about Bitcoin as compared to the all of the financial instruments that came before it. So the characteristics of Bitcoin are number one, it's it's cryptographically secure. So when uh, when Satoshi Nakamoto, he, she, or they, whoever that is, uh, when Satoshi Nakamoto created Bitcoin, it wasn't inventing new cryptographic technology. It was using proven uh, cryptography that's out there. And the idea of symmetric key cryptography, where you can have a public key and a private key, and someone can know your uh, public key but it doesn't give them any information about your private key. And so every, every Bitcoin account or wallet, as some people call them, and both of those have, um, have flaws as ways of describing, but it's a good starting point. So every account has a private key and a public key. And if I know your public key, I can send you Bitcoin, but I can't take Bitcoin out of your account if I don't know your private key. And so that's what makes it cryptographically secure. The public uh, symmetric key, public and private key cryptography. And this is, again, very well proven, very secure, and uh, not something, again, that's unique to Bitcoin, but it's applied in that way. Second characteristic of Bitcoin is that it has a fixed supply. The, the software uh, that, that maintains Bitcoin uh, will not allow there to be more than 21 million Bitcoin to be created. And there's a lot of underlying technical things we could get into. I don't think it probably is the focus of what we want to talk about here. There's, a, there's kind of a reason why it's 21 million. It's a little bit arbitrary, but, but um, essentially, again, Satoshi Nakamoto, when Bitcoin was created, set that parameter. And it really doesn't matter because 21 million it could be 31 million, could be 41 million. It doesn't really matter. It can, it's all subdivided right now into um, eight decimal places. So the, what is known as a sat or a satoshi, the smallest unit of, of Bitcoin that exists today, is one 100 millionth of a Bitcoin. So it can be very finely subdivided. And, and if it's ever necessary to subdivide it further, um, more decimal places could be added, and there's nothing preventing that. But the fixed supply is a great contrast to all other currencies that exist in the world today. And, and so that's one of the most unique things about Bitcoin. It cannot be inflated the way that um, you know, government-issued fiat currencies can be and, and typically are. And it, it doesn't have an uncertain um, inflation the way gold does. It's, it's got a known fixed supply, and that's a very important characteristic of Bitcoin. 
Another characteristic is that it's decentralized. And I also think this is critically important. How decentralized is it? Well, anybody can essentially run a Bitcoin node. Uh, in fact, I've got one on a rack right here in my office running on a Raspberry Pi. I've got a full Bitcoin node. And that means that I am one of the people who is enforcing the rules of Bitcoin. That uh, in order to change any of the rules about how Bitcoin functions, you need to get a majority of the people who are running Bitcoin nodes to agree to adopt that. And so it can be very, very decentralized in terms of uh, almost anyone uh, being able to run a full node and participate in the governance of Bitcoin. And, and that's what prevents anyone from making arbitrary changes. Hey, Myron, could we say that for the first time in a very long time, you're a miner? I'm, I'm not a miner. Actually, I'm not running a mining node. I'm, I'm just running a Bitcoin, uh, a full Bitcoin node of the blockchain. So it's, it's a, uh, a validating node, not a uh, mining node. Good distinction. Yeah. So no, I'm not a miner. <laughs> you know, and one, one important characteristic of, of, uh, of Bitcoin is that it's intangible. And I think that's something that has evolved in financial instruments over time. So if you go back not too far into the past, money was always something that was tangible. It was gold or you had pieces of paper or coins or, or something like that. Um, but now, even with, without Bitcoin, you think about your bank account. Well, you don't actually have anything physical in your bank account. It's, it, your, your account is kind of what you know, which is you know your account number and you know your password to log in. And, and so money, in terms of the way we bank and the way we use it, has become less and less tangible. Now with, with Bitcoin, we're all the way to 100% intangible money. And it's about not what you have, but what you know. You know your, uh, your keys to be able to unlock your Bitcoin account or your Bitcoin wallet. And there's nothing tangible there. It's a number of Bitcoin associated with those keys. And that's all. And the, the last characteristic that uh, I think is important is, is simply that it's novel. And I'm going to come back to that in, in a bit and explain why that's important. But, you know, there's been a lot of buzz over the last uh, decade about Bitcoin and, and how new it is and, and people get excited. And I think that that's an important characteristic. So uh, making sense so far in terms of the, the essence of Bitcoin, the function, the characteristics, anything you feel like I'm missing no, that's, that we that's should setting touch on? Up the, first three, the first three layers, which are you know, not the funnest part, but it's certainly... It's, it's, it's certainly kind of shaping the way that we're thinking about, that we're able to think about what Bitcoin is. Okay, great. Well, then let's keep going and we'll talk about the, the role of Bitcoin. And as I said before, the role is that Bitcoin is, is money. And uh, what, what makes it money? Well, you know, it was intentionally created to be money, but that doesn't guarantee that it would be a successful money. But what are the characteristics of a money commodity that, that makes it money. Well, and, and this is not unique to Bitcoin, this would be any money. Um, one is that it's scarce, right? Um, we wouldn't use um, grains of sand as money because you could just go out and pick them up and there's nothing scarce about it. There's no control over its supply. 
Also, it's fungible, meaning every unit is identical to every other unit. So $1 is $1, and there's, there's nothing different about the, the, the value of $1. The same is true for Bitcoin. That's why, uh, that's why gold was a, a, um, a useful money commodity. An ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. And so things that are not fungible, where each unit could be significantly different, you know, diamonds, you, why don't we use diamonds as money? Well, because it, there's a lot of expertise that has to go into grading diamonds to know uh, how valuable each diamond is. Uh, another characteristic is that it's divisible, so can be can be divided it down into very small units. We wouldn't use something uh, uh, that couldn't be divided as money because then we would only have large units of it. Uh, it's portable. Obviously, you got to be able to move your money around and use it in transactions, and that it's transferable can be passed from one person to another and and not uh, uh, not restricted from moving around. So those are the characteristics that are typically talked about in a money commodity. It's been a while since I've done any formal study of monetary economics. I certainly have no academic credentials in it anyway, but it's something I've read about because I'm a nerd. Uh, so I may be forgetting some important things there, but but in general, those are the key characteristics that make something uh, moneyable, as they say, something that would have the potential to be money. And so then there are the functions that, that money performs. Again, not specific to Bitcoin, but that any money would perform. And, and really, it's three things that are primarily talked about there. And that is that it would be a store of value. So something that would hold value over time, something that can be a medium of exchange so that it can be uh, you know, used for buying and selling, and that it would be a unit of account so that businesses can you know, manage their profit and loss statement, their, their, um, their balance sheet by some common unit of account. You know, if a business makes tires and another uh, business uh, you know, sells breakfast cereal, well, how can you compare the performance of those two companies? Well, the answer is you have a common unit of account by which they measure their profit and loss. So by all of these things that we've just talked about, the way that the, the protocol and the characteristics of Bitcoin define it, it meets all of these characteristics and is able to potentially provide these functions of money. Bitcoin is scarce. I talked about the limited supply. Uh, it's fungible. Every unit of Bitcoin is exactly identical to every other unit. It's divisible, like I said, right now down to that one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin, but even that can be extended. So it's, it's virtually infinitely divisible, highly portable uh, and transferable. And so it's, it's potentially able to function as a store of value or a medium and a medium of exchange and a unit of account. Now, would we say today that it ideally performs all those functions. No, no, it, it doesn't because, uh, because of volatility and because uh, while it's gotten some adoption, it's not widely adopted enough to be able to use for all your purchases. It's not a stable unit of account uh, because if, if the value of Bitcoin is wildly fluctuating from one day to, a next, to the next, it's it's difficult for uh, for business 
to use that as a stable method of accounting uh, to, to measure the performance of their underlying operation. Certainly some people today consider Bitcoin to be a good store of value, but even that could be you know, somewhat called into question. It, it's a speculative asset right now uh, that people think will go up in value, but again, it's very volatile and has, has huge swings in its, in its relative market value. So it has the potential to perform all these functions, uh, even though today we can't say that it's doing all those. Now, in talking about Bitcoin as potentially money, I'm saying potentially money in, you know, there are people who say Bitcoin is money today, and there are people who, who say that it's not. But I think uh, I'm making the case that it certainly, whether it is money today or not, it certainly is potentially money. Now, there's one objection to that that comes primarily from people in the Austrian school of economics who focus on the regression theorem uh, concept of money. And uh, again, this is something I've read about, but not recently. So if I don't get all the points exactly right, uh, at least I'll be directionally correct. So the regression theorem says that in order for something to become money, if we just think about gold, before gold was adopted as money, gold had some underlying commodity value as gold. It was valued as, as jewelry, as a decoration, as a paperweight, whatever people used gold for before it was money. And then over time, the moneyable characteristics of gold led to it being adopted as money, but there was an underlying, you know, what, what was the value of gold such that it could be used as money? It had to start with some underlying commodity value separate from its money value. So the objection that people make on the basis of the regression theorem is to say, well, Bitcoin has no underlying commodity value, therefore it cannot be money. And I, I would say a couple things to that. Number one is I actually believe, I agree with the regression theorem, but, um, but that doesn't arbitrarily then say that is the only way that something could become money. But in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the case here that, that Bitcoin actually does have an underlying value. And, and this should be obvious. And I'm surprised that otherwise intelligent economists are, are not picking up on this and are using this as an objection to the possibility of Bitcoin becoming money. Remember I said earlier, one of the characteristics of Bitcoin is that it's novel. And so Bitcoin, at the moment that the first Bitcoin were, uh, were mined by Satoshi Nakamoto and uh, th then started to become known to others, it had novelty value. These were, there were people who recognized its potential as money, but there were a lot of people who were just nerds who were really into it and thought that it was cool and wanted to have some Bitcoin for its novelty. So there's nothing about the regression theorem that puts time on it and says, no, it has to evolve slowly over centuries or millennia. It just says it has to have any underlying value. And, and the bottom line is, Bitcoin had immediate novelty value uh, the moment that it was created, just like gold's value was essentially novelty as jewelry, that sort of thing. Having Bitcoin as a novelty gave it instant value, but also when gold became money thousands of years ago, no one, no one had read any economics on the theory of money and what, what makes something moneyable. It did emerge slowly over time, but now we understand what money is and how it functions. And there are a lot of 
a lot of economic theory and, and practice that deals with it. So the ability to recognize the moneyable characteristics of Bitcoin didn't have to happen slowly. It was intentionally created to be that and could be immediately recognized as that. So it was able to transition very quickly from a novelty to a potential money commodity. And so I, Jeremy, I, I'm taking up all the space here and hopefully this is, this is making sense. Uh, but I am hopefully making a good case for Bitcoin as potential money. And in my opinion, Bitcoin will continue to, uh, will continue to grow in its adoption and will become a money in all of the characteristics with the store of value, the medium of exchange, and the unit of count functions all being something that Bitcoin performs. Therefore, Bitcoin maybe is money today, but probably I would still call it potential money. Uh, but I'm, I'm in the camp of those who believe that Bitcoin will become a global money. Thoughts? Yeah. So you've, you've set these four levels that, that are allowing me to think about what Bitcoin actually is. So one, it's a protocol or you know, a technical set of rules that allows it to work on the internet. Two, it's a ledger or basically a, a record of transactions. Three, uh, it has these characteristics of security, scarcity, um, it's in the hands of the people. Uh, and then four, this fourth level is the role that it plays. It's money, essentially, in a, simply stating, meaning that it'll maintain value. You can use it to make payments, buy and sell things. So if we think about Bitcoin, those are the four levels. Now, I know that it's not monopoly money or get rich quick scam, but, and, and you've gone through some of this already, but I still want to explore the so what. What's its value? What problems can we say that it's really solving or expected to solve? And I want to get to that by starting with the end in mind. Because I feel like right now we've gone through the Big Bang and we're in this stage of development where galaxies are coming together and planets are forming. Uh, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, today Bitcoin is seen as a speculative investment by most people or a hedge against inflation by some people. But if we were to go out to its ideal state, to its ultimate evolutionary stage, would we see it, and, and I know that you mentioned this before, I, I kind of want to restate it, but would we see it as like a globally recognized form of money that's more efficient than what we have today and holds value better than what we have today? I believe so, yeah. I, I, I realize it's, I'm, I'm not uh, in the camp of some who, uh, I guess Bitcoin maximalist is the, is the term that I hear used. Uh, who are 100% certain that this is inevitable. Uh, I think it's highly likely. It's certainly not inevitable. It, things could go a different direction. But what do I believe is most likely? Yes, I believe that Bitcoin will become a globally recognized uh, currency, a money for transactions, for store of value, and for a common unit of account. But we already have that today with fiat. So what big problem is Bitcoin solving? Okay. So a couple things. Uh, I'm going to 
take a little rabbit trail here on something I've been thinking about recently. And these are, I haven't fully worked through all of this, but I'm going to throw it out, get your reaction and, and maybe explore it in, in future episodes. If we, if we think that there are some valuable things here, I've been thinking sort of historically about the role of technology in this concept of centralization and decentralization. And if you think about the technology of the 19th and 20th centuries, it was fundamentally centralizing technology because it was industrial. It required large investment and bringing people and things together. Uh, and uh, even like the, the weapons that were created, you know, led to arms races and bigger. And uh, so I, I'm kind of working through this, this hypothesis that the technology of the 19th and 20th century was fundamentally centralizing and that I think the technologies of the 21st century in some ways are fundamentally decentralizing. So the internet uh, started out somewhat decentralized and now it's sort of centralized a little more. You've got the large tech companies that are, that are somewhat centralizing the internet, uh, but still the internet as compared to not having the internet is very decentralizing. And, and so I think that Bitcoin is a really, really important part of this decentralizing that we will see unfolding over the, the coming decades if my, if my hypothesis is correct. So that's sort of a, a theoretical view, but, but let me get more practical now in the, in the so what. Uh, it, it's money that can't be tampered with. Uh, you know, every, every fiat currency uh, inflates. And when you think about it, Fiat currency is a recent experiment. I mean, nobody knows. Is it going to work? I mean, the, the gold standard sort of devolved through the 20th century, right? Starting out with the, the fractional reserve and the, the federal reserve system and the dollar system, the Bretton Woods agreement, and then all the way up until uh, the U.S. went fully off the gold standard to 100% fiat. We're very recent in this experiment when you think of it in the scope of monetary history. And in the last hundred years, the U.S. has had to essentially restructure that little over hundred years, but the U.S. has essentially had to restructure the dollar several times to avoid defaulting. Is there another, is there another way that, that the dollar could be restructured to avoid default? Um, they've kind of They've kind of run out of options because it's fully fiat. Where do you where do you go from there? And so Bitcoin cannot be tampered with, it cannot be inflated, and it cannot be restructured in the way that that national currencies can. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh yeah, I, I think that, you know, and I'm I'm just trying to 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 really kind of get to this point of it's not just this speculative in, investment that ultimately it's intended to provide a few things one access to to wealth to people outside of just the united states that currently don't have the same access to you know financial opportunities that we have so that's one that in the us we don't necessarily see or think about because it impacts others but here you know, we don't really think about our money losing value. So people talk about the dollar losing value. We don't think about our money losing value. We had $5 yesterday. We have $5 today, but we know when things cost more. So people talk about, you know, Bitcoin as being a hedge against inflation. So I think that that's, 
one of the key components of it. Those, those are two key components of the value that Bitcoin is intended to ultimately have, which is provides access to, to wealth, to countries that don't currently have the same financial opportunities. And two, it's a hedge against inflation, the same way people might use gold or investors might use gold today. Uh, Bitcoin can be used as, as a hedge against inflation. Now, how far in the future do we think that we reach that end point to where it's a globally recognized currency that is now more efficient than what you currently carry around today? And it actually holds value better than these dollars that we carry around today. We don't really know, but I mean, I don't know if you have a guess. It could be five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Uh, the real point is that it's in the future. So, it, and I, I started this conversation by talking, by starting with the end in mind. So if that's our end for Bitcoin or kind of those uses, those use cases for it, working backwards from the end, the ultimate evolved stage that we just talked about, what value does it have today that we can take advantage of during this evolutionary process? Because if I, if I think about it as like this evolution, we had the big bang and then it's kind of chaotic and you know it's highly speculative, risks are high, but it's starting to smooth out and things are starting to come together. And we're, we're still in this evolutionary process, but we can take advantage of it today. We don't want to wait for 10 years from now that we can say, okay, now we have this new thing that we can use to make payments with and maintain our wealth with. Um, but would you say that it's you know, an asset that is in its early stages of developing value? And essentially today, we are betting on the probability of it increasing in price as people, the market discovers its usefulness. Because the question would be, why should I invest in it today? It's volatile. And I don't even know is it going to be around? Is it just going to be a collectible meme coin one day? <laughs> so right. what value does it have today and next week? Yeah, that, those, are, those are really important things to think about. And I, I've been asked by people uh, you know, at a few points in time, should I buy Bitcoin? They were asking my financial advice, which is, uh, <laughs> I don't know why they thought that I would have anything to add, but, uh, you know, what I told them, uh, was you, you should buy Bitcoin at a level that you're comfortable with. If you think about the fact that it's equally likely to go to a million dollars or zero. And, uh, then I think in most of those cases, the people didn't buy Bitcoin and came back to me mad later that I didn't say buy it. Uh, mm -hmm. but I, I still stand by that, that, you know, if someone wants to, you know, look at the risks and say, okay, well, it's equally likely, to, and I'm just arbitrarily picking a million dollars. I don't, I don't know what it, the future price of Bitcoin could possibly be, but let's just say, you know, it's equally likely to go to a million or to zero. And then, you know, that's, that's uh, how someone should e evaluate that. And, and the timing is also very uncertain. You know, we have to, there are, there are, regulatory risks. There are uh, a whole variety of risks that, that could come along just in terms of adoption of, you know, things that could prevent Bitcoin from succeeding. Do I think 
that it will become money. As I've said, I think that is the likely case, but it's not a certain case at all. Yeah, we're, we're basically betting on what we expect it to be in the future. That's what we're doing today. And the, the real point of this podcast, I'll kind of wrap it up here, but the real point is that we believe that the knowledge and the understanding of what it really is, uh, is important and what we expect it to be. Because when we're placing bets, we want to increase our probabilities that we'll be right. So this, the knowledge and the understanding of what it is, uh, the, the, the actual function of it is important to understanding the probabilities of what you're betting on. And for some people, they have no idea. They're basically like, hey, I hear a lot of people are making money at it. Should I buy it? Well, we want you to understand what it actually is, not just from a technical standpoint, but you know, to think through these four layers of what it fundamentally is so that you can make your own determination of how much do you want to bet that it's ultimately going to become what people think that it's going to become. Because we are in this evolutionary stage and it's already been, been going on for several years. So it's not like this just started up last year, even though a lot of people just heard about it last year. It's been going on for several years and it's disrupting things that have been in place for a very long time. So it's actually moving faster than a lot of technologies move. And I think just having this fundamental understanding of what it is helps us see down the road, you know, the, what the end result, what that ultimate evolved stage is. And then the more we know, the more we understand it, the more we can manage our risks of betting on it today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm doing. Before we wrap up, uh, let me go back. There were a couple points that I missed along the way that I want to, want to cover and, and then we'll, then we'll close out. Um, uh, one, one thing that, that I didn't mention it, it, common criticisms of Bitcoin that, that have certainly been valid is that transactions are slow and, ex, and that the transaction fees are high. And, and that is, that is true. If I'm, if I'm sending Bitcoin, uh, from me to you, uh, it takes, um, you know, minimum 10 minutes, but, but sometimes hours for that transaction to be confirmed on the blockchain Again, not, not getting into technical detail, but just, just high level for that transaction to be confirmed can be time consuming. And also the, the fees can be somewhat high. Uh, is, and so even a small transaction can have high fees. However, those limitations are being overcome very rapidly. The lightning network that I talked about at the beginning for how people can, um, can stream us uh, micropayments, shameless plug, that is using the Bitcoin Lightning Network to send Bitcoin in tiny, tiny amounts uh, instantly and at no fee. And, and that is, while I certainly would can still consider the, the Lightning Network to be somewhat in beta, not ready to scale up and you know challenge Visa or MasterCard for uh, the ability to use as an, a payment method it is in use today, and the country of El Salvador has declared Bitcoin legal tender, and the Lightning Network is widely adopted as a way to, to buy things. And, and really, one of the big things that holds back Bitcoin from becoming a common medium of exchange right now 
is in fact regulatory because the US and the EU, and I don't know about other governments, I haven't looked into it, but certainly the US and the EU treat Bitcoin for tax purposes as an asset, which means that um, when people sell Bitcoin, they have to pay capital gains tax on it. Uh, and when you buy something with Bitcoin, you're essentially selling your Bitcoin for that other thing. So there's actually a regulatory barrier that's stopping people from using Bitcoin uh, for transactions. And, and so it's an interesting question and something I've been thinking about a lot lately. At what point in time will the U.S. government, think about the U.S. because that's, that's where I live, obviously. At what point in time will the U.S. government capitulate and say, Bitcoin is no longer going to be treated as an asset and, and capital gains payments, uh, a tax, taxes required on every transaction, and it could be used as currency. And I don't know, there's a lot of game theory about uh, thinking about when, when that might happen, but I think it could happen sooner than some people think because uh, politicians want in on that action when there's money to be made. And as, as people who hold Bitcoin uh, become wealthier, which is happening now, will it continue? Who knows, but uh, it's happening now. So uh, they're going to be important uh, donors to politicians and politicians themselves are buying Bitcoin. We've heard, heard some accounts of various politicians who have Bitcoin. So I, I actually think that that may happen sooner than some people think, but maybe yeah, it'll never happen. go back to this being an evolutionary process. You know, I mean, there was a time when, when everybody, when people paid a dollar a minute to use their cell phones or, you know, graphics were terrible and it took forever to download things. So you, you couldn't even stream movies. I mean, everything in its early stages seems like it's not going to work because the technology of the time doesn't allow it, but it's an evolutionary process. And, you know, I think that there's a lot, a lot of the security and utility of Bitcoin has been proven. So these other things like the, the transaction times and the fees, there's a lot of people that feel like that's going to be worked out and it's being worked out pretty quickly. And you know, ultimately here, we just wanna provide uh, an approach, a way of thinking about what investments or money is. And in this case, our, our kickoff episode, it's about Bitcoin and it's evolutionary and revolutionary is the way that I think about it. Myron, I know you do too. And we just want to provide a way for everybody to, to actually process it and understand what it is. Excellent. Well, I know I did most of the talking. Thanks for your patience, Jeremy. Uh, but it is something I've been thinking about for a while. And so I'm, I'm glad to be able to talk about it. And I want to encourage all of the listeners to check out podcastindex.org for more information about the podcasting 2.0 that I was talking about. Also, uh, go check out the Mentally Unscripted podcast, uh, the episode that, that I was on. And please uh, go to our site, mentalsupermodels.com, and there you can find show notes and also the links to connect with me and with Jeremy on LinkedIn. That's the primary way that we use to connect with folks. So you can, uh, you can hit us up there and we'd be happy to, uh, to chat with you online about anything that, that you want to discuss related to this episode or any others. Excellent. All right. Great episode. Thanks, Myron. Thank you, Jeremy.